Thank you. It's delightful to see so many people here this afternoon. Um, for another in our fellowship presentations, we've had like a winter series, one after another, and beautifully varied audiences and some repeat people coming back, which is just lovely. So tonight's presentation is by Dr Bridget Vincent, who is the 2016 National Library Fellow in Australian Literature, supported by the Eva Colesman and Ray Matthew Trust. Um, the trust was set up by this wonderful benefactor, Eva Colesman, in honour of Ray Matthew, an Australian poet. Very appropriate for tonight. Um, and is there really to support writing and a study of Australian literature at the National Library, and we're incredibly grateful for such a bequest. As we begin, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and recognise their continuing culture and contribution. And we thank their elders, past and present, and extend this respect to other Indigenous people present. Our acknowledgement of traditional custodians is especially pertinent as Bridget turns our attention to the relationship between Judith Wright's poetry and her political activism, much of, course, which was much of which, of course, was dedicated to issues around Indigenous land rights, justice and recognition. We also acknowledge tonight the presence of Judith's daughter, Meredith McKinney, over here. Meredith, wave. <laughs> um, she's very self-effacing, but she's a long-standing friend and researcher at the National Library. Um, and, of course, she's uh, given Bridget really open access, full access to the personal papers at the library of her mother, which we thank you for, Meredith. While Judith Wright's rich personal papers have been used for multiple research topics and publications, Bridget brings to us a quite new perspective to this inquiry. She's been exploring and analysing the continuities and differences in Wright's writing of poetry and her political writing. When Bridget applied for the fellowship, she was a Mackenzie postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Melbourne. But by the time of the actual award, she'd been appointed to the University of Nottingham in the UK as Assistant Professor of Modern Literature, teaching and researching poetry in particular. As a result, she's had to spread her fellowship across the two summer European breaks at the beginning of her new appointment. So thanks, Bridget, for flexibility, I think, and thanks to the National Library staff who made that possible. Like many younger scholars in the humanities, Bridget has forged a globally mobile career. She did her undergraduate studies and PhD at the University of Melbourne, her master's at the University of Chicago in the US, PhD and postdoctoral affiliation at the University of Cambridge, where she also taught for several years, then back to Australia and now back to the UK. <laughs> During her postdoctoral research in Melbourne, she also founded an outreach program called the Australian Youth Humanities Forum, aimed at widening participation in the humanities. And she herself has really modelled and grasped such opportunities as a young leader in the profession. And we congratulate you on that, Bridget. Her case study of Judith Wright forms part of a larger project across English, Irish and Australian poetics, modernism and the civic role of writing in the late 20th century. When she left her research at the library unfinished a year ago, she wrote quite movingly about how much Wright's passion for the power of literature to redress past wrongs had revealed itself in the archive. And we sometimes forget that fellows' research can form an emotional journey for them 
as well as a process of intellectual discovery. So I think you're delighted to be back at the library resuming this research and we've only just recently welcomed you back. So we greatly look forward to this discussion of poetry and public apology. Please welcome Dr Bridget Vincent. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robin, for that very generous introduction, um, which is, I think, highly typical of the kind of welcome that fellows receive at the library. Um, I'd like to start by reiterating Robin's acknowledgement of the first Australians on whose traditional lands we're meeting and to pay respect to their elders past and present. And as we'll see from tonight's discussion, this kind of act of acknowledgement is especially relevant when we're talking about Judith Wright and her definitions of justice. I'd like to thank wholeheartedly the National Library of Australia for the extraordinary opportunities that this fellowship has presented and for the support and inspiration that I've received from everyone associated with the fellowships and the staff of LG1 in the library, but particularly Robin Holmes, Margie Byrne, Marie-Louise Ayres, Beth Mansfield, Patricia Reynolds, Janula Burns, Alison Massey, Andrew Sargent and Isabel Johnston. In special collections, Karina Anderson, Katrina Anderson has been particularly helpful in suggesting avenues of research. I'd like to thank the donors for supporting new work on Australian literature. And thanks particularly, again, to Meredith McKinney for her generosity in talking with me about her mother's legacies, both literary and political. And finally, a brief thanks to the people who've helped me to make Canberra my kind of second home, Sarah Haywood, Cameron Hook, Lynn Kavalik. Since the middle of the 20th century, the phenomenon of public apology has become increasingly prevalent and visible, as we'd all know. When we think of public apology, we tend to think of ceremonial governmental events the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the iconic genuflection of Billy Brandt at the Warsaw Ghetto Monument, and of course, Kevin Rudd's apology to the Stolen Generations. Alongside these official apologies, there has been a surge in literary representations of public apology. We have books like J.M. Kitsey's Disgrace, Kate Grenville's The Secret River, Gail Jones's Sorry, and of course, many of the poems of Judith Wright. Now, these literary representations of public apology present something of a scholarly conundrum. One of the questions my research asks is, do these representations simply describe the apologising process, or do they participate in it in some way? Might these literary works preempt, advance, or modify the more official processes of social change? Judith Wright's work offers a rich case study here, not only because she's one of Australia's foremost activist writers or writer activists, though I think she'd probably be uneasy about whether to include that hyphen and, and where to put it, um, <laughs> but also because as a long-standing advocate for the rights of Aboriginal people, she was acutely aware of the need for a national apology. Indeed, at one point, she even wrote one of her own. 
At the end of her 1999 memoir, Half a Lifetime, there's a paragraph set out on its own page as a kind of afterword. It reads as follows. To all the peoples of the old and true Australia on whose land I have trespassed and whom, by being part of my own people, I have wronged, I plead forgiveness. To all of them I owe that overweighing debt of life itself and to all of them now I bend my head and say sorry. Sorry above all that I can make nothing right. Did she make nothing right though? That's sort of my central question. One of the questions motivating my research is what is the status of this paragraph as a political gesture? Is this a representation of an action or an action in itself? Now, one of the questions that is useful to sort of come back to, one of the concepts at work whenever we ask a question like this, is the concept of the speech act or performative phrase as defined by the linguist J.L. Austin. With apologies to anyone already familiar with the idea of speech acts, and I imagine there'd be a few of you, um, I'll just give a quick overview of this before talking about why rights archive is particularly significant in this context. So a speech act is a phrase which, in being spoken, doesn't constitute utterance alone, but performs actions in the real social world and hold our fire with potential raised eyebrows about where real is anyway. But um, Austin gives the following examples. To utter the phrase, I promise, is to perform the act of promising. To say, I bequeath this to you, I bequeath, is to perform the act of bequeathing. And in a wedding, the phrase, I do, or I now pronounce you married, is the act itself which marries the couple. You can't have the wedding without it. Similarly, the act of apology is performed through the articulation of the phrase, I apologise or I am sorry. You know, so far, so intuitively sensible. Um, but it gets a bit more complicated because in setting out his definition of performative speech, Austin explicitly excluded those speech acts uttered as part of an artistic work. He argues that... If any of these phrases are spoken, for instance, on stage, they do not count as performatives. The audience understands an actor's promise as an artistic representation rather than a genuine act with genuine consequences. Austin writes, a performative utterance will, for example, be in a peculiar way hollow or void if said by an actor on the stage or if introduced in a poem, indeed, or spoken in a soliloquy. Now, of course, this makes intuitive sense that if someone is pronouncing a couple married on stage, the two actors are not really being married in their offstage lives. But, and this is where it gets tricky and interesting, while the performative phrase, marrying the couple in the play, might not bind the two actors in real life, it may in some cases still constitute some kind of social intervention especially if this representation is at odds with the political realities of the time and place of performance. Consider, for instance, a representation of a mixed-race marriage in 19th-century America, for instance, or same-sex marriage in contemporary Jamaica, or indeed Australia. <laughs> the, the question then becomes, 
What do speech acts in works of literature or drama do? Surely they don't do nothing. Surely Wright's apology in half a lifetime didn't do nothing, even if it didn't do quite the same thing as Rudd's apology. What then is the act in an artistic speech act? And how is giving an answer to this different from giving a general account of the social powers of literature? So these are some of the theoretical problems for which Wright acts as a particularly interesting case study. The relationship between public sphere speech acts like Rudd's Apology and speech acts in literature like Wright's Apologies in her prose and poetry. But more broadly, I'm trying to think through how the dynamic between literary and political language in speech acts might speak to the larger questions of the relationship between writing and activism because not all of Wright's contributions could be reduced to reflections of speech acts, of course. Now, Wright's work is especially well-placed to shed light on these problems. If we look again at her apology in Half a Lifetime, we can already see how this one paragraph complicates J.L. Austen's clear distinction between literary and real, non-literary speech acts. After all, the very form in which she's making this apology could be considered at once literary and non-literary. It's a memoir. It's a type of literary writing. But at the same time, it's, of course, defined by its element of the non-fictional. Furthermore, the audience that Wright gains for her apology was earned in part, or in very large part, through her literary work. We don't think, you know, we think poet and historian Judith Wright, not historian and poet Judith Wright, I'd say. Um, So the audience that she gained for her apology was gained in part and large part through her literary work, which raises the question of whether in this case and more broadly... Austen's artistic, non-artistic division is defined solely by the genre in which the writer is working or by the speaker's identity as an artistic figure. I mean, I kind of think she only got a reply for all of those letters that she wrote to politicians because she was Judith Wright, the poet. Um, So while some of Wright's most important statements of public apology were made in prose form, it was her civic authority as a socially conscious poet which earned an audience for her ideas. Now, most importantly, Judith Wright's work complicates J.L. Austen's ideas about the relationship between the literary and the real because her activist work around apology and redress for Indigenous people emerges through many different kinds of rhetorical occasion, through literary writing, non-literary writing, and writing which complicates the boundary between the two. So one of the arguments I want to make is that Wright's explicit apology in something like Half a Lifetime forms part of, and indeed can't be understood without, the gestures of redress that she makes elsewhere in her poems and her historical writings. Now, thinking about what these wrongs are is really important here. So part of the wrong that many of Wright's poems acknowledge is not only the original and ongoing acts of violence and dispossession, but also a lack of record and acknowledgement. 
Now, Wright explicitly positions her historical books as a contribution to the reparation of this wrong of silence. In a collection of essays called Born of the Conquerors, she stresses the, quote, suppression of the real story of the great pastoral invasions of inland Australia. We see this again in, her, in one of her other important pieces of, of non-fiction, We Call for a Treaty. As, as, else, as in, else, in her other writings, Wright places explicit emphasis here on the lack of historical discussion. She writes... The story of the overrunning of the continent without any attempt at compensation, agreement or even bargaining by the land takers was hushed by most early historians. And among the verbal wrongs to which her historical writing in The Cry for the Dead responds are the deficiencies in Wright's own earlier family narrative, Generations of Men. In a 1977 letter to Nugget Coombs, Wright talks about this kind of reparation of her own deficient memorialising. She talks about repairing her earlier lack of knowledge. She's writing this letter from on the road, she's on a research trip, and she's reading old diaries with a new perspective. She writes, I'm finding the diaries depressing reading this time round. Knowing more than I did in 1949, it's fairly easy to read between the lines. Clearly, the pastoral industry at the beginning depended far more on the Aboriginals than has ever been acknowledged. Well, I shall add it up, finally. Wright notes this lack of recognition in her own consciousness when she writes to Ujuru Nunakal in one of her most famous poems, Two Dream Times. She writes, So it was late I met you, late I began to know, they hadn't told me, the land I loved, was taken out of your hands. And many of her other poems reflect on this same idea in quite a direct way, mentioning cover-ups of massacres in lines like the following, the wrong involved is a major massacre, but also the wrong of the fact that it was ignored. Did we not know their blood channeled our rivers and the black dust our crops ate was their dust? We should have known the night that tidied up the cliffs and hid them, had the same questions on its tongue for us. In many of these poems, breaking the silence takes place through representations of natural phenomena, which are figured as witnesses, silent storehouses of testimony to which the poet gives voice. Wright's poems cast a forensic light on the landscape, peeling back the surface layers of the earth in order to show the past acts that they concealed and preserved. And we see this in the poem Bullocky, for instance. Grass is across the wagon tracks, and plough strikes bone beneath the grass, and vineyards cover all the slopes where the dead teams were used to pass. So after describing a bullock driver's habitual routines and specific moments, Bullocky here opens out onto the present, in which signs of the past remain but are buried when the poet metaphorically unearths them. Similarly, in At Kalula, Wright counterpoises the surface level of the present with the historical memory underneath. Walking on clean sand among the prints of bird and animal, 
I am challenged by a driftwood spear thrust from the water. So we see how in all of these poems, the poem itself acts as a kind of silence breaker, helping to translate the stored memory of the land. And just from looking at a couple of these key poems, before we even get into the archive, we can already see that Wright's prose apology would have had much less force without these other gestures of kind of belated remembering and redress. This much we can see from Wright's published materials. The archive, in turn, sets these gestures in a broader, richer, and in some ways more surprising set of contexts. In the Wright archive, I've been primarily looking at the very extensive collection of letters. The Wright papers um, contains a large collection of incoming letters to Wright. Um, and they've been preserved in a manila folder, several manila folders, which Wright herself wrote on. And she put, letters worth keeping, understatement of the year. <laughs> What's been richest, though, is the set of letters collected in other people's papers. Most importantly, these are the letters that Wright wrote to Nugget Coombs, which were made public only a few years ago. But there have also been very illuminating letters from Wright in other collections, particularly the papers of Noni Sharp, Dimfna Clark and Jan Gamage, and the broader papers of a group called the Aboriginal Treaty Committee. Now, these archival materials enrich our view of the relationship between art and activism that's visible in Wright's published work. But most importantly, the archival material complicates in useful ways this distinction that I began with between real social actions and literary language. So, you know, when we think back to J.L. Austen making this kind of division, what do you do with a letter in the archive that thinks very poetically about the view outside the window before saying, I've got a fantastic uh, new paper that needs to be circulated about the protection of Fraser Island. You know, is that art, is that politics, is that, is that both? Of course, it's both. Um, and the question is, in what way is it useful to sort of categorise these things? So, what the archive shows ultimately is the extent to which Wright saw the problems that she was working with as themselves having linguistic origins, as well as linguistic means of redress. And this is the part that I didn't quite understand quite as much before I read the letters. Um, you get a very, very strong sense that it makes absolute sense for a writer to be engaging with these problems because these problems are problems that don't just originate in but are perpetuated by, by language, by things like um, the choice to use the word settlement instead of invasion, by the use of little lies that allow for deception, etc., by, by jargon, by historical cover-ups, which is ultimately you know, a lack of language. So what came across in these, in these letters was a real sense that the problems themselves are linguistic. Now, how did this manifest itself? So... This is particularly evident in her discussions of Indigenous rights in her updates in a sort of semi-formal, private but also public, um, in 
publication called The Network of News for Supporters of Aboriginal Rights. I say private because it was, you know, very much um, something that was produced by a network um, of people who knew each other, but it was also sort of circulated beyond this. So its place in, in the public sphere is also something that could be kind of contested. But what's interesting about this is that she's absolutely vigilant and absolutely scathing about linguistic crimes. So, so this is, yeah, this is, this is an, um, an ad that the Aboriginal Treaty Committee took out. So she was part of this group. And, and so this network of news was part of the same sort of set of activities. Now, this is one of the pages from the network of news. And we see here her being this, this vigilant. She says, um, she's, she's talking about the wording for the act establishing the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation. And she notes that Aboriginal people were not adequately consulted on its wording. She writes, the issue was delayed until the Act for Establishing the Council for Aboriginal Reconciliation could be examined. The Act, as usual, was rushed through both Houses of Parliament before Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had been able to inspect and consult on its wording and implications. As might have been expected, it is a bad Act. This is... You know, she pulls no punches. This is apparent in its first clause, which reads, Australia was occupied... So this is her quoting from it. Australia was occupied by Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders who had settled for thousands of years before British settlement at Sydney Cove on the 26th of January 1788. Emphasis added, says Wright, ever scholarly. And then she says underneath, underlined, it is not possible to settle a country which is already settled. So we see here this, this emphasis on language and wording itself as part of the problem, not the extent of the problem, but a, a significant part of the problem, comes up again and again in the letters. For instance, she laments in a letter to Coombs on the 29th of January 1988 that the government seems to be standing firm on the opposition attempt to change the wording of the parliamentary resolution recognising prior Aboriginal occupation and the need for self-determination. So this, this wording keeps coming up. And this is evident even in her editing of one of Coombs's documents, which he sent to her to have a look at. And she stresses the difference between the linguistic gestures of recognition and guarantee. She writes in an undated fax about a document um, setting Australia in relation to New Zealand. She says, I think it is fine, the document... Ah, now, here we are. Sorry. I think it is fine but would suggest the following. A reference to the Aboriginal Peace Plan, published in the current Aboriginal Law Bulletin, June 1993, a temperate and good document, especially on recognition and protection of rights, and a clause on no extinguishment without consent. And now here, this is her, her emphasis on, on language here, I think that the fact that the Waitangi Treaty does not only recognise but guarantee protection is highly important. So we see this even just in her, in her discussions with Coons. Um, and on a slightly lighter note, I was, I was very much struck by this letter from a young person. She had many, many letters from young people. And, you know, I, I wrote to you last year. This is from a, a David Lee. It's 1983. I wrote to you last year expressing my enjoyment of your works. 
I completed my HSC last year and I'm currently training to be a primary infants teacher, etc. And he sent her a little elephant, um, a, little, a little present. Um, it, re it represents the fight against um, the extinction of, of endangered species. Terrific. So it's full of sort of heartwarming things like this. And Wright, accordingly, uh, writes back very magnanimously. And one of the things she does just while she's there is just to make sure that this young person is aware that when he writes about a trip to New Guinea, um, so he says, in December, I shall be going to New Guinea with a group of friends, etc., to do some practical teaching. She doesn't, she doesn't miss an opportunity to say, best wishes for your New Guinea visit. By the way, they call it New Guinea now. <laughs> you know? Just all, you know, never, never missing that, that opportunity. It's, it's this sort of useful, endless vigilance. Um, now. Okay. So letters like the ones that I've, I've been discussing so far highlight the fact that for her, both the problems and the solutions have their roots in language and the concepts that language allows us to have. And she writes, for instance, about a category called Aboriginal uses in relation to land. She says, I've done a sort of brief document for the conservation strategy advocating a new category of land use, Aboriginal uses. So here she's inaugurating a concept and thereby um, putting, sort of sending out a new idea into the world. Now, just as she's acutely aware that categories of language can create categories of thought, she's also very much aware of the lies which can be propagated through language in the form of jargon. And she uses direct quotation to highlight this with very caustic precision. In a 1988 letter to Coombs, she writes and she, she cites the language that they use in order to skewer it. She writes of the long delays over land claims and the setting up of a treaty issues directorate and possible central coordinating unit. So, the contributions of people who work with language, like Wright, become particularly important when the wrongs themselves are, at least in part, verbal ones. Sometimes these wrongs involved the wrong wording, but just as often and this is going to be my focus for the next sort of moment in the talk, they involve not wrong wording but a lack of wording, an absence of language, a silence in the historical record. And the remedy for this was Wright's very energetic research, information, circulation, publication. You could just about have a new agitate, organise... Yeah, you can, have, you can have sort of new yeah research. In, mm, it's not as it's it's not as singing. Um, now, an emphasis on the idea of the dissemination of information as a political act of activism, as involving a kind of reparative redistribution of facts, emerges really strongly throughout the letters. And this was another thing that I, I hadn't quite realised until I read the letters. So, in an article. That, and yeah, in an article that she wrote for Aboriginal Treaty News, a different publication, she's really clear about how important this form of activism has been in her life. She actually says, 
I regard the four and a half years of working with the Aboriginal Treaty Committee as perhaps the most useful part of my life. Whatever else we may have done or not done, we have provided much of the necessary research and information on the issue. I find it so interesting that she, she talks about the importance of this in her whole life. This is sort of one of the most important things she's done because we provided the research, because we provided the information. And she sort of says that quite explicitly. And in her letters, she frequently mentions this process of research and collation, photocopying, admin, that went into preparing treaty-related information for this network of news. For instance, she wrote to Coombs in 1982, went into Canberra on Tuesday, picked up the enormous file of news clippings for the next treaty news. I'm still sorting it out and trying to get a line on it. In this 1987 letter to Coombs, we see her collating and passing on others' articles as part of a group process of rigorous private self-education. She says, I'm taking the copy of the resolution to be photocopied in Canberra on Wednesday and will distribute it around the environment movement there and in Queensland, where no doubt there has not been proper reportage of the conference. She says, in the same letter, I, have, I also I have a new issue of Land Rights News with a good article by Richard. Wish I were more mobile and able to work longer, says Judith Wright, um, and I could use that material better. And she says, about, about another piece of information, I shall send copies of the resolution to Treaty 88. There is also an article by Garth in the April issue of the Aboriginal Law Bulletin on the background of the Victorian legislation, which is very interesting. A 1991 letter to Jan Gamage shows Wright responding to a perceived need for activists to educate themselves as she passes on a list of readings. She says the references below should help Aboriginal rights supporters and conservationists faced with hard questions to inform themselves a little more on these matters. And she reflects here in this letter on, um, with a kind of pragmatism about the attendant limits on this kind of activism... I mean, she certainly, she believes that it's necessary, but she's sort of aware that it only actually works if it responds to a collective need in other people to educate themselves in similar ways. She writes, if you know any others who may be interested, switch to them instead. I don't see any use in the network idea unless it actually works. Do you? Now, it's important to remember that there was a kind of Catholic dimension to this activism in the form of information sharing and self-education. She didn't do this only around Indigenous rights and the conservation of specific wilderness areas. She did this around everything. So issues like the ozone layer. So the same kind of instincts are visible in this letter uh, that she wrote in 1975. I've sent the copy of the Climatic Impact Assessment Program panel report on ozone problems to Jeff Mosley suggested that the ACF ask the Academy of Sciences whether anything is being done in Australia to check what amount of production of halocarbons goes on in Australia and to phase it out in accordance with some US action. So this seems to be sort of her process. Find out about a problem, see how you might distribute information to help in its solution. Now... Wright's emphasis on the importance of circulating information was formed against a backdrop of concern about this kind of lack of historical memory that I was talking about before. 
She wrote to Coombs in an undated letter. I remember the woman who remarked to me after reading The Generations that she hadn't realised there was a time when Queensland had no railways. The notion of a time when there wasn't a Queensland would have been quite beyond her. No wonder we learn nothing from the past. As far as most people are concerned, there never was one. Wright's sense of the gaps in the historical record extends beyond Australia itself to the region as a whole. She writes about our ignorance, about the history of Fiji, for instance. In 1987, she writes to Coombs as follows. I find very few people I talk to, and I talk to few, have any idea how the Indians got into Fiji. It is long past time that Australian educational systems and historians turned their education from the kings of England to the local scene. This interest in a global lack of historical observation in Australia and the region is reflected in a 1992 letter to Dimfna Clark, remarking on a belated interest that her work was starting to gain overseas. She writes... I'm finding tremendous belated interest in the subject, her, the cry for the dead, from overseas. I'm finding this especially remarkable from Great Britain, where the whole thing originated, but which they have totally ignored since the middle of the 19th century. An interview is to come out in a literary journal there, covering all that stuff which they refuse to read in the cry of the dead, cry for the dead, and certainly in We Call for a Treaty. Late indeed to start boning up on that, she says wryly. She frequently stresses that part of this lack of historical attention was down to a continuing media cover-up, particularly around Indigenous justice and the environment. In a 1978 letter to Coombs, she mentions the publication The National Review, which, like it or not, is the only journal which is doing anything about reporting the Aboriginal situation. Similarly, in a 1992 letter to Dimfna Clark, she talks about the age. She says, I note that very few, if any, people who are Aboriginal supporters get their responses to it published anywhere but in the age. So there's this sense of sort of cover-up. So against the backdrop of this media and historic silence, Wright's commitment to truth-telling as an ethical end in itself comes out... Um, particularly clearly and becomes particularly, becomes particularly important. Um, and I'll read, it's kind of a long paragraph, but it's worth reading to get a sense that showing how things are is not just a kind of move setting up the game, but it's the game itself and whether or not, you know, uh, it actually achieves your ultimate ends is less important than the fact that you have to lay the groundwork. She writes in this letter to Coombs, it's quite... Um, it's quite philosophical. She says, she's talking about his involvement in a royal commission. She says, I think the commission may be of extra value just because it can expose the power structure and the pecking order and protection and privilege you speak of. It's the culmination, after all, of what we've been after for so many years. The material want that treats the world as though it were only there to satisfy us and we were what it was all made for. You can't expect the submissions to reflect anything else, except in rare cases, 
because that is what they think the Commission is for. But to be able to expose some of this motivation to the light might help, don't you think? And letters like these show Wright's ultimate ambivalence about her ability to make much change. There's a consistent sense in the letters that social repair on the level of language is necessary even if it's not sufficient, as the analytic philosophers would put it, um, that it's a good in itself. In a number of letters, you see her wondering about whether her activism has done any good and lamenting the time it's taken from her poetry writing. She often mentions this tension in her life between writing and activism. In a 1981 letter to Coombs, she says... Now I must try to become a literary woman again for a bit, having caught up with the correspondence. I'm getting pangs of guilt for having written so little this year. This is in 1981. Similarly, she wrote to him in 1975, My 60th party will be an occasion for me to announce it's time I stopped doing so much and got back to my proper business, whatever that may be. But it's not exactly conducive to verse, this being an activist. But then on the other hand, in a 1981 letter to Silvana Gardner, she wrote wryly, I really shouldn't have anything more to do with mere literature. It's too time consuming. <laughs> um, and she wrote, I think one of, one of her best quotations about this was in a, a letter to Coombs in 1988. Um, they're talking about a book by Zola and she says, I haven't read that Zola, but I will see if it's available. But of course... One can't, alas, change the world by writing good books. Only bad ones, perhaps. <laughs> but then she says, I fear that even in Zola's day, it was too late for change. So there's a sort of sense that even if you can't be sure that what you're doing is going to achieve something, you have to kind of continue in a sort of beleaguered hope. And towards the end of her life, she reflects on what they have managed to achieve. She writes to Coombs in this undated letter. We do seem, in spite, sorry, that's not spire, that's spite, in spite of your dubious views, to be getting a bit of a stranglehold on some things. Who would have thought that things would have got so far when we started in 1978? Yes, I know it should have got further long ago, but relatively speaking, I do think it's been a very successful couple of years. And she wrote, similarly in 1975, when one thinks that the most we can hope for from all of this, she's talking about uh, environmental protection here, is the prevention of further mining, it seems a terribly wasteful procedure. But it's better than nothing, and thanks for getting to help it, helping to get it, however wearing it may be. So what emerges from the right archive, then, is, I think, an enlarged sense of what redress for past injustices might look like. To come back to the problems that I started with, as defined by Austin and his idea of speech acts, it seems that this, this framework, um, I'm not just kind of setting up a straw man, it's a useful one, um, Austin's idea of apology as a kind of speech act that has certain conditions that have to be in place in order for it to be fulfilled. But 
it becomes particularly rich to probe around at the edges of this, to think about how these literary speech acts that Austen excluded so confidently might actually be valuable. Um, and we see this, you know, we see this in her poems, we see this uh, in her prose writings, and we also see this in the literary dimensions of her letters because surely she couldn't have been so active had she not been such a kind of bracing and effective rhetorician in all those letters, all of that information distribution. So where Austen saw speech acts as happening only in very strictly defined forms of communication... Wright's archive shows that an account of apology and redress can't be complete without an account of this wider constellation of utterances. But more than this, these letters leave us with a widened sense of where activism can be found. That it can be found in the obvious places, but it can also be found in the scrutiny of the fine linguistic details that allow injustices to take hold in the first place. And I think this is where, um, coming back to the library, for me as a literary scholar who works on poetry, who is always being charged with uh, political inefficacy, what are you doing wasting your life working on modern poetry? <laughs> you know... Um, an encounter with this kind of archive that shows you how um, a detailed, intellectually informed, rigorous engagement with literary and linguistic detail can have an eventual political payoff acts as a kind of vocational encouragement to <laughs> young scholars. Um, so... Um, I always used to be very snobby about people who do a kind of messiah criticism, um, but I, but you know, there is. I, I said to someone halfway through this fellowship that there is a bit of an element of admiration criticism coming into this, and I think that's kind of okay. Um, so, thanks again to Robin and the wonderful team at the library for this opportunity. It's been, um, as I hope to have shown just from this talk, it's been. Um, very, very enriching for my book project. And just to leave you with um, another slightly light-hearted sense of where activism can be found, in the archive there are all of these uh, cards that, amongst the letters, there are these beautiful cards, some of which have you know, botanical drawings of flowers on them, some of which have uh, wildlife protection slogans. And you get a sense that, that writes energies and political indignation never let up, that even if she's, she's sending off a funny card to a friend, it's in support of the long-footed potteroo and she's even making a joke about, um, about short-sighted politics. So if, I think this, this little document emphasises the fact that activism can come in very, very many forms when you're Judith Wright. Thank you very much. Oh, 
sure that was inspirational. <laughs> and uh, I sort of have two feelings immediately. One is your delicious and wonderful advocacy near the end for studying poetry. <laughs> but also the second of... Um, where are our artists? Stand up and be counted because you do feel like Judith Wright lives in the moment, not just in the past. And all the issues she was dealing with and was so strongly an advocate for are still in the public light, um, very definitely in the public light in today's politics. So artists, stand up is kind of what I take away from your marvellous lecture. Um, so thank you so much, Bridget. Okay, I think we're open for questions or comments or if Meredith wants to make a comment. <laughs> We've got loads of people in the room immediately. So let's start here, then there, then there, and then there. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. Absolutely. Poets stand up, artists stand up. But what do you see as the legacy of Judith Wright today? Do people know about her? Are they following her? Are they reading her? Are they thinking about her? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think it's really interesting that you're asking this question at this particular moment because I think um, you would probably get quite a different answer even five years ago or ten years ago. Um, I think it's safe to say that there is certainly a resurgence of scholarly interest um, in, in right around her politics but also... Um, there's a resurgence in scholarship which links her to other modernists in, in ways that haven't been done before, um, particularly by a lot of kind of young Australian um, scholars who are, you know, um, thinking about her in relation to certain kind of uh, theorists of the Frankfurt School. Um, so there's, 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 there is, I think, renewed scholarly interest and scholarly interest which sees new things in her. But I think there's also renewed cultural interest. I think that's, that's fair to say in that um, there, you know, when we see this in the way in which her, her uh, writing was set to music uh, by Katie Noonan recently, we see this in the new um, book by Georgina Arnott about her early life. So I think there's, there's increasing interest in her as a as a figure but also as a kind of transnational modernist yeah so so i i feel quite optimistic about about interest in right at the moment i I'd, I'd, I'd be interested in you know what what other people sort of think about this cuz but that's my sense yeah thank you thank you <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think. Um, well, I think you could. You could think about 
Thank you. That's a, that's a useful observation that you could think about from a number of angles. Um, I think first, one thing it's that it's important to say is that um, where is the agency in, in the word lost? You know, to what extent was, was that a loss and to what extent was that, was that cover-up? Um, and I, mean, I think your, your point asks uh, implicitly what, what we can do um, you know, with, with the archives. And, and I think it's important to think about the difference between um, the time in which Wright was, was working and, and the present, in that on the one hand, I think it's useful to take Wright's approach as a kind of model um, on an elemental level, on a sort of fundamental level, i.e. seeing the distribution of information as a form of truth-telling. I think that's something that we can take from her and apply to this situation that you're describing to all kind of situations of archival recovery. But also recognise that, in some ways, any direct recommendations about the form of this that you would draw from Judith Wright are, of course, dated because, you know, she needed to make these networks of newsletters because there was no internet. Um, and, you know, when I think about... Uh, what can be done, and you know, thinking about this in the National Library, and there are other people here who are more um, qualified to talk about this than me. But when you think about, you know, trove, when you think about digitisation, uh, those are things that Wright um, had only the merest inkling um, about, I would say. Um, but so I think there, the the sense that we get from Wright is to make the most of that information, but do do that in a way that, that comes out of the kind of technology that developed after after her death, I'd say. Yeah, does that... Yeah. And the timeliness of all the poetry would be something that she must have understood. Yes. Yeah. I'm trying to control my eye-rolling reflex when people <laughs> say things like that. Yeah, sigh. She said it's like poetry, it can't be understood. Yeah. Yeah, he just needs to try a bit harder. Um, I mean, I do think there's this... I, know I roll my eyes about this because I have been doing that for 20 years, but um, I, I do think there's something serious to say about um, the challenge involved in, in getting any kind of political information from, from a poem, that, that part of what makes a poem useful as a political utterance is that element of difficulty of 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 you know learning more about the language itself through a kind of vigilant engagement with those lines, um, and that that difficulty might turn you away if you want something really easy, but if you stay with it, uh, that there's there's something to be gained there for your own cognition. Yeah. Um. Mm. There was talk of uh, Judith being the first female Governor General. How do you think she would have gone? Oh, well, I think she would have been great, and I think she, yeah, and I think she would have hated it. Um, so I think, I think both of these things. I actually seem to remember she, um, she talks a bit about this in, in, in the letters. Um, yeah, and, and 
Um, well, certainly about you know about royalty and about about relate you know the relationship with um, with government and and as ever, she takes a very pragmatic line. And I think she probably would have accepted and she probably would have... I don't know, Meredith might be able to shed light, but she would have used that, I think, to um, further the kinds of justice that she was interested in while at the same time, um, you know, lamenting the kinds of structures of privilege that, um, you know, that, that would put her there rather than, say... Or Drew and Nicole, or yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Great, thank you. That's um, that's a really thoughtful, nuanced um, contribution. Thanks. So I I agree, and I think what's really interesting there is the difference between poetic utterance and utterance in other literary forms. So when you have a poem, um, as you say, there's the potential for that to be a kind of direct utterance by the poet through the poetic speaker of, of the poem. So, you know, when, when Wright says, um, you know, but, but I, born of the conquerors, you know, she's not talking about an, an imagined um, figure. She's very much talking about I, I the historic Judith Wright. Um, but, of course, the interesting thing of, uh, about um, poetic speakers is that they can align with authors in that way or they can involve a persona that's not the historical author at all. Um, so there's a kind... So I think you're really right to, to raise this problem because there's a kind of slippage between um, any utterance that you can pin down to the author and um, the utterance that you get from the, from the persona, from the sort of poetic speaker, in a way that is different in a novel, say, where, you know, you might have the narrate... You might have a character saying something um, and then the narrator putting a kind of ironic spin on that, say, and sort of showing that, that you know, if someone... And I think the, the perfect example of this actually comes up in the novel that I mentioned, Kitsi's Disgrace, where there's a public apology. Um, who's read Disgrace. Okay, a, f a few people. So, so for, for anyone who, who hasn't, so there's a very interesting scene in Disgrace where, um, where the main character is pushed into giving an apology um, for sexual harassment and assault. And the status of the book as, as a whole, of, of Kitsi as, as a writer, is very ambiguous in relation to the beliefs of that character. So some, you know, some, some sort of critics have seen 
um, the character David Lurie's apology as as being kind of damned by Kitsie, the author, but others see the tone of the book as sort of suggesting that that this is actually all a little bit, you know, um, the product of political correctness. And so, so yeah, I think you're absolutely right to to raise the fact that there's a difference there between poetic speakers, that as soon as you talk about performative utterances, there's a difference between poetic speakers in literature and, and other forms of literary I-speaking things. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Thanks. Yeah. Mm. I I Yes. And now this will remember that Armadale and the property was close to Armadale did not have any commemoration of her. Oh, how interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That, that's that's very uh, useful. Thinking about um, commemoration of Wright herself, and you know this idea of historical silence that Wright's so interested in relation to other people. You know, we might think about where the blind spots are in the commemoration of, of Wright, and it's absolutely unsurprising that they're there. Um, you know, given some of the things that she says in the letters about feeling very culturally dislocated from some of her extended family members. Um, yeah, thank you. Now, <laughs> I'll stand up so that you can hear me. Uh, it's a pity that the people who have soprano voices don't stand up because I can't hear them. <laughs> Great. Much impressed. The point is, where did you get her humanitarianism and her sense of solidarity with the original people. Yeah. Tell me about it. Where, where did it. Where where do I where think it came from, from yeah. in her? In her education. Yeah, yeah. This is... Um, yeah. All, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to... It's hard to speculate about this. Um, I, I can only say, I think, what I can kind of read off 
from the letters about, about values, which is that everywhere, everywhere she turned, she seemed to react whenever she encountered any kind of injustice. And that was a, this sort of emphasis on fairness. Um, you know, seems to be a very, very long-standing character trait. Um, but as to her education, that... It could be quite interesting to think about that because, um, you know, you could make certain kinds of um, speculation about about how her reading shaped her moral mind. Um, and one of the things that you could potentially, I think, quite persuasively say there is that she, you know, by virtue of some of the kind of work that she was doing with Jack McKinney around large philosophical systems, she was always thinking about how... I think we can say she was always thinking about how specifics that you encounter in ordinary life and modern life relate to larger abstract patterns. And so this reflex in her moral thinking to refer everything to a larger pattern, particularly if it was a kind of unjust pattern... Um, is perhaps is, is perhaps to do with the kind of very you know work that she was doing from from a young age around a kind of philosophy that looked at the world both from uh, up close and from a distance, and which reminds me as, as as well that another thing that you could say about that is when you say up close, I think there's a kind of commitment to. Um, empirical truth to observing the world as it really is and part of that comes from her scientific uh, observational cast of mind uh, as well and that, that that for her is a moral a moral thing if you're sort of thinking about where her humanity in the political sphere comes from in her cast of mind I think that's another strand there as well because there are all these letters I that's another talk um, that she exchanged with um, conservation biologists. And she, I, I think she could never be accused of being one of these um, conservationists who have a kind of romantic and naive um, attachment to the bush. Like, she, she had a very scientific interest in the detail uh, around, around her. And that had a... I think that was part of this moral... Um, process of truth-telling. Observe the details and pass them on. I think that... Does that make sense? Not enough. No? No. Uh, no. Uh, We've got one okay. here and then one at the back. But yes, it's your response oh, to that. My question is related to your question of legalisation. I find the, the word you cover up is very unconsciously. Because mm. you cover something is a letter you know. Mm, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's totally interested in the evidence in the story. Mm-hmm. And the cover-up is like something you already had and the people try to, you know, disrupt that truth or whatever. But where's the 
Well, Yeah, sure, and we'll leave room for the last question. Yeah, I mean, I think... Well, I think there are two things that we can talk about there. Um, I'm not going to get into this in, in a lot of detail, but I think the the, the word cover-up um, in a lot of the cases that, that Wright was dealing with is very much um, warranted, I think. I think sometimes there's a lack of... Certainly, in certain cases, there might have been a lack of information, but I think where, where Wright's concerned, when she's thinking about, um, about, for instance, massacres that were undocumented, you know, I think cover-up is, is quite clearly the right word for, for a lot of these um, genocidal events. Um, but I think you can do a bit uh, with your comment about linguistic problems, though, because there, I think you can possibly make a useful distinction between a problem that is wholly linguistic and a problem that's linguistic in origin. And I think what I'm saying here is that Wright is interested in the ways that that problems that manifest them in, themselves in all kinds of ways can also be traced to a linguistic kind of origin. So, yeah. So that's a, that's a useful um, intervention. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, or, or, an, or an origin. Okay, thanks. So we'll have to wrap up. There was a final... I think we had one... There was one question, I think. Yeah, no, go ahead. I just have a question. Um, your idea about how poetry might be an exception to Austen's rule is really yeah. interesting. I was wondering if you thought that might be because poetry in particular as a, an art form has got a much stronger oral history right. than, say, yeah. novels yeah. or painting, for example. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. That's very interesting. And, yeah, and you can't think about poetry or, indeed, you know, the category of the lyric without thinking about the history of it as, as an oral form. I mean, I think if... Yeah, that, it's, it's very interesting to feed that back to J.L. Austin because he uh, is so interested in, you know, speech acts that are um, in speech, you know, that are oral, um, you know... And he's interested in how they how they work when they're written down. But his prime his model is based on uh, interpersonal spoken communication. And therefore, if anything, poetry of all literary art forms might be, you know, a particularly good place to, to start. Yeah. Thanks. That's interesting. We are right. going to call it quiz. Okay. <laughs> I can see that the degree of audience engagement with this topic and with Bridget's talk is that um, to say that your very close reading of this incredible archive that we have, as well as the poetry, um, brings both right into a bigger picture kind of issue, brings right into a global kind of view that you're working on to bring right into an international perspective on public, 
public apology and poetry, but also is very, very engaging from kind of cultural and literary perspectives. And I think with that, I want to say a tremendous thank you to you for such insightful reading of an archive, because that alone has given us a tremendous, um, I suppose, an inspiration for why we appoint fellows like you. <laughs> so thank you, Bridget. <laughs>